Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? So it came out today that the Biden administration is mulling over the idea of a complete outright ban on offshore drilling. So I have to rant about it because I'm pissed. First off, oil and gas consumption is a largely inelastic factor within the economy. You cannot quickly migrate to electric vehicles, not to mention most people can't fucking afford them because we're experiencing terrible inflation in a shitty economy and who's going to be able to buy a $60,000 electric car? Only the wealthy, right? Only the people that probably would have been doing so already. So you have people who have to get to work, who have to drive. Sure, it might reduce their voluntary fun driving a little bit, uh, but ultimately you are trading off domestic energy production, which can be done more safely, cleaner, and you're trading it off for freighters from the other side of the world or Venezuela or you know the Middle East to be shipped in. Does that create pollution? Yes, it does. Does that offset the, the minor decrease in the voluntary consumption and utilization of our cars? Yeah, probably. So does it improve the economy? Does it reduce carbon emissions? No, it doesn't. And if it does, it's so negligible, it's not even worth mentioning. So what is the intention here? Well, if you ask me, the intention is to break the fucking economy. And if that's not the intention, that is the outcome. So either way, these people are lunatics. I also wanted to talk briefly about how unbelievable this paradigm shift is when it comes to the oil and gas industry more broadly. You have OPEC, which is reducing production. I forget the amount. I've, re I've read elsewhere that it's 2 million barrels and other people say it's 800,000. Whatever it is, OPEC's reducing production. Well, we have shortages globally. So the reason this is notable is that we have been backing Saudi Arabia in their destruction of Yemen for a decade or so. The trade-off is that they will only sell their oil and gas in U.S. dollars. This is the whole underpinning of the U.S. dollar system as the global reserve currency is that you have a handful of countries that will only sell their oil in U.S. dollars. The trade-off has always been, okay, you guys do that to underpin our currency and give it value. In response, we'll commit atrocities with our military industrial complex. That's the trade-off. I know it's hard to look in the face and realize that that's what's happening, but it is. It allows us to run huge budget deficits and it allows us to export our inflation to the world. That's how it works. It's tragic. It's sick. It's the truth. That's the whole reason your dollar has purchasing power, or the most dominant purchasing power, at least in the world. Uh, so you now have Saudi Arabia working in tandem with Russia to elevate the price of oil. That's my, that's my read of this. If anyone disagrees, tell me why I'm wrong. So we have this relationship with Saudi Arabia that's supposed to be, sure, we arm and fund you and we allow you to go and you know blow up the poorest people in the Middle East, in Yemen. But you have to, in response, keep oil prices reasonable. You had Joe Biden go over there to try and harangue them 
into keeping production elevated so that we don't have our economy break. But then you simultaneously have this push from the Biden administration to limit and hinder oil production as much as possible domestically. This is all madness. It really shows a tremendous paradigm shift in the sense that you now have Saudi Arabia and other oil producing countries, which are no longer doing the bidding of the United States of America. They are working against our interests from every angle I can perceive it, at least, unless there's something I'm missing. And that shows that our, our position of being the dominant global hegemon is diminishing rapidly. And I don't know what that means exactly, but it does look to me like a, a major shift in our footing, our, our position as global hegemon. So it's something that we need to be paying attention to. I think that the, the thing that concerns me most about this is that you simultaneously have conversations and, and plans that have been discussed and put in place and implemented that include things like the Great Reset, that language being used by most Western leaders. And I can't help but wonder if this is an intentional implosion of our economy. And yes, I know it sounds crazy. And yes, I wish I didn't think that was possibly what's happening. But I feel like I would be doing you guys a disservice if I didn't just say what I think might be the case. I can't come up with any other justification for why you would prefer to ship more expensive oil and gas from overseas when you could just be producing it right here. Can you give me a better rationale? Sure, there's the potential that it's just to you know, feed red meat to your lunatic Green New Deal voters, I guess, but you could just give them lip service and then lie and still allow us to drill domestically. So you are actually doing it. And what that tells me is that this is a concerted effort to break our fucking economy. So why? Why are you doing that? Only conclusion I can come to is that you don't you don't fear us any longer. You think that this is okay, that we're just going to allow you to break our economy and diminish our way of life, our standard of living, and we're going to accept it and we're going to do nothing about it. And it also makes me conclude that perhaps you don't view you don't view the the ballot box as a threat anymore. Which makes me wonder if it's not a threat anymore. If we can't vote for alternative paths, I think there's a real question to be had there. Sorry, I'm getting hyped. Tell me, tell me where I'm wrong here. Tell me where I'm wrong that this that this doesn't appear to be what's happening. Because there's no other obvious conclusion to come to. Like you can only go down the conspiracy route here for any sort of semblance of a logical explanation. And it's it's horrifying. I mean, if you have a hundred and ten dollar plus barrel of oil pricing moving forward into a terrible, deep, prolonged recession while simultaneously starting quantitative tightening, which means that you're absorbing money from the system, but also increasing interest rates simultaneously, which you're not supposed to do. That is how you break economies in the first place. If you do quantitative tightening and you hike interest rates, 
that those two things, you should only do one or the other. That's like historically, that's what has been advisable. Because if you do both, you're going to blow up things that you don't expect. Look at Deutsche Bank. Look at uh, Credit Suisse. You're already seeing it. You're already seeing things that we don't expect to blow up that are gonna that are gonna start. And there has been no. They have not relented on this path, despite the fact that these elevated interest rate levels mean that they can't afford their treasury. So what are they going to do? They're going to have to monetize our our debt, like the I mean not ours, but the United States government's debt, which broke thirty one trillion this week, thirty one trillion, not including unfunded liabilities, which by many estimates are over a hundred trillion. So, what's the plan here, folks? What's the plan here? Because it seems as if you are just driving us off a cliff. Sorry, I wish I had more answers for you guys. I wish I had a hard conclusion that I could just be like, okay, yeah, this is what's happening exactly and why. But the only thing I can conclude is that they're breaking the economy intentionally to migrate us to a CBDC or something like that. I mean, implement UBI, roll out a central bank digital currency and just say, this is your only pathway to, to eat. This is your only pathway to put fuel in your car. I guess I'm answering my own question, but I just don't want to believe it. I just struggle to believe it. I struggle to believe that this would actually be intentional because these are real lives. These are real people that are going to suffer. Many of the many of which voted for this insanity because they bought the propaganda that mean tweets and orange man bad had to go no matter what. So we're going to put in the biggest danger in my lifetime. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that they are driving us as rapidly as possible towards World War III. So you're telling me you want to have elevated fuel costs. I didn't even mention the fact that Biden has diminished our strategic reserves of oil. Are we are we ruled by people who are trying not just to start a world war but to lose it? Because that's what it looks like. It looks like they are trying to start World War 3 and make it impossible for us to be victorious in it. You're filling the the military ranks with, you know, woke insane people as opposed to trained killers, which is what the military is supposed to be filled with, right? I mean, whether you oppose the military-industrial complex or the military itself or the government, whatever, that's still what the military is supposed to be. It is there to kill. So you're going to fill it with a bunch of people who are like more concerned with pronouns than they are with survival. Does that seem like a recipe for success? No. Okay, now you're going to have a, a, a multi-front world war, potentially nuclear, which you can't win. You're going you're gonna to make sure that that happens at all costs. But then you're going to also break the economy simultaneously. Oh, and you're going to have strategic reserves low so that it, if any of our enemy combatants decide to stop selling us oil and gas, which obviously they would during a world war, we don't have any other options. Oh, but we have domestic production that we could uh, obviously supplement to make sure that we can still function economically. Oh, no, we no, we don't actually, because you're banning that because you're making that as hard as possible. What sense does any of this make? I feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm like I'm watching the entire political class 
just either advocate in this direction or turn a blind eye to it. Why is this not why or why are there not congressional hearings about what's happening right now? Why are the Republicans not up on Capitol Hill screaming holy hell? And you have no and, and the Republican Party largely is quiet about the Ukraine thing too. I mean, Thomas Massey and a handful of others aside, they're they're either voting for continuing funding of this proxy war or they're silent. It can't continue. We can't have people in power that do this to us, to the world. I mean, I've I've obviously I've focused a lot on the potential for World War III lately, but the even if we're fortunate enough to avoid that, the economic consequences of what I'm talking about are going to be catastrophic. Catastrophic. And I haven't even mentioned that we're dealing with by most estimates, around double-digit inflation, 8, 10, 12%, whatever you think it is, 20% if you're you know, going real deep on this stuff. It's just completely unsustainable, folks. And I don't, I don't bring any of this up to fear-monger. I don't bring it up to, to try and you know, make you scared as much as I just want your attention brought to it so that you might do whatever you can in your day-to-day -day life to point out Hey, guys, stop. We can't continue on this path. We will die. <laughs> I mean, if it's not World War III, you'll have people will die. When you have severe global depressions, people will die. And then you have the push for ESG, which is obviously part of this oil, this domestic energy cutoff that they're working on. But more broadly, it adds to inflation because energy production, not not pursuing the cheapest energy and the, the most potent energy, which is unfortunately, by some people's perspective, unfortunately, still oil. Sorry, it is. Fossil fuels. It's the best energy we've come up with yet, other than nuclear, which we don't do that either. So you have ESG, which is being pushed simultaneously. You have inflation, you have the potential for World War III, you have the cutting off of domestic energy production, you have quantitative tightening, you have elevated interest rates, and you have the funding of a proxy war indefinitely. And I didn't even mention Nord Stream, which dollars to donuts, we know who did that. So either the US government did it or they turned a blind eye to it, right? I mean, is there any other conclusion? Oh, no, 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 no. Vladimir Putin blew up his own. Tens of billions of dollars went into the production of, or the uh, installation and creation of the Nord Stream pipelines. It's also the cheapest route that they have to export, export their, uh, I think it's oil. I think it's oil. Their oil to uh, Europe. Goes into Germany. They had to negotiate all sorts of contracts with all these other countries as they go through the Baltic. It's the only, it's the cheapest outlet they have to sell their primary export. It's the only leverage they have to get Germany or the broader European Union to not want war with them. And they blew it up. Because when you're in a chess game, you want to make sure you take your queen off the board. Does that make any sense to fucking anyone?
Does anyone buy that thesis? Because John Brennan, former director of the CIA, would have you believe that they're the most likely culprit. No. That communist wouldn't fucking know the truth if it slapped him in the face. It's obviously not the Russians that did that. And the CIA or the you know U.S. government came out today and announced that, yeah, it looks like, uh, uh, what's her name? Arya, the uh, Alexander Dubin's daughter who was assassinated last month. Yeah, done by the Ukrainians. Is there any reconsideration of our blank check, endless support, arming, training of the Ukrainians in this proxy war against the biggest nuclear power on Earth aside from the United States? No. Do we even talk about that? No. I think I think we probably ought to be. I think it's advisable that we at least consider that maybe we are funding not the good guys in this war. Not to say that the Ukrainian people are the bad guys. There is certainly an argument to be had that the Ukrainian government is not the good guys. They, they have assassinated a private citizen. Is that of concern to anyone? They have kill lists, for God's sakes. Man, this is deep. <laughs> this is really deep. I just, and then it comes out today, there's confirmation that the United States has special forces on the ground in Ukraine, American troops on the ground in Ukraine. In a war zone, in a war zone, in a war that if our American troops, God forbid, were to be killed by Russian bombardment or invasion or whatever, would be certainly would be argued by many of the bloodthirsty lunatics on Capitol Hill that that is justification for us to become involved in a hot war with a nuclear power, the biggest nuclear power on Earth, aside from the United States. Not okay. Now, I knew this a year ago because it had been reported that we have had special forces on the ground in Ukraine for years. But it's now confirmed. So... There you have it. But we have nothing to do with the start of this war. No, 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 no. We just armed, trained, funded the entire opposition to Russia in their invasion. An invasion which I do still oppose. But can we at least address the fact that the United States government is doing all of this under the cloak of darkness? I think the American people have a right to know if they're going to be propagandized into believing that this is out of the blue, that no one could have seen this coming, that it's completely unprovoked and unjustified and da 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 you're going to lay all that case out there, well, you should at least be explaining to the people that the United States government has had its hands in the political apparatus as well as the training of the fucking military and now the arming and funding of it for years. Arguably a decade. I think that's worth knowing. I think it's worth discussing. I think it's worth not banning people who bring it up. I think it, the fate of humanity may rely on it. Not to put too much weight on it, but it could be possibly the difference between the American people supporting 
World War III or avoiding it. I think allowing us to speak openly and honestly and truthfully as to the best of our ability about this when it matters the fucking most is mandatory, not optional. Forgive me for being upset. Friends, family, everyone I know and love, I'm concerned. I'm very deeply, deeply concerned. Even putting aside my own survival, which I would prefer, obviously. And if we avoid World War III, I'm still concerned about their survival. I'm still concerned about the economic landscape moving forward. An economy which is a house of cards built off fiat, built off inflation, built off borrowing and debt, built off of complete unsustainability. And then you supplement that with this push for sustainable development, which ultimately amounts to shortages, increases in costs, and inflation. We're ruled by absolute lunatics or they're evil or both. Those are the only answers. And it will not last. We cannot stay on this path. I can't help but notice the historical comparisons to USSR late stage. It honestly feels like either we end up in a world war or we peacefully dissolve because I see no other outcome that's peaceful. And I see no way of sustaining. There is zero chance that you can continue on this path economically and sustain the government or the economy or the people or the food supply or the energy supply or anything else. It cannot be sustained when you're functioning like this. When you're making domestic energy production all but illegal. It's not sustainable. And to do so under this banner of sustainability is insulting and Orwellian. And, and, and irritating. <laughs> very, very irritating. I don't know. Pray. <laughs> Just pray. <laughs> I don't have any other answers right now. I'm not even religious. And I'm like, please, free us from this madness. Free us from this madness. All right. I'll stop ranting for now. I've got an interview coming up here. Um, it's an interesting book. It is a interview with an author. If it's not for you, just shut this episode off now. I get it. It's okay. I'll forgive you. Um, it's about a woman who was actually uh, an activist, a shareholder activist in throughout the 1900s. Uh, very interesting life story, uh, especially for my female audience, which I know is limited. I think you guys will find it very inspirational. If uh, maybe some of the men out there too, you never know. But if you're if you're not interested, I will see you in a couple of days. Don't sweat it. Um, also, later tonight, I will be on No Way Jose with Jeremy Kaufman. Myself, Jose, and Reed Coverdale. Uh, maybe Top Lost, I'm not sure. So make sure you guys check that one out. And uh, last but not least, if you want to support the show, go to libertylockdown.locals.com and sign up to become a supporting member. I will be doing an AMA over there either, yeah, definitely next week. 
definitely next week. I'm going to be doing the AMA. You get to come in on stream with me, talk about all this insanity, commiserate with me. It'll be fun. Again, libertylockdown.locals.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. If there's one thing that you should probably take away from my show, it's that living your life on autopilot will likely result in disappointment. Taking control of your life is really how we make for a better tomorrow. And one aspect in which you can do so, which you probably aren't right now, but I hope more and more of you are. In fact, I've received lots of DMs of people signing up for Crowd Health, and I really appreciate it. It's a great way to support the show, but more importantly, I think it's a great way to take control over what, unfortunately, is a big aspect of our lives, which is health insurance. Um, so this is a, a great opportunity to do so. Open enrollment is now here, and that means that now is time to take charge of your healthcare decisions. We all know that the system isn't working, but thanks to CrowdHealth, you can do something about it. CrowdHealth puts your healthcare back into your hands, cuts out the middleman, saves you money, and funds your healthcare costs without relying on big government or big insurance companies. It's a really creative, great entrepreneurial innovation that answers much of what ails us when it comes to the healthcare industry, in my humble estimation. I will, in fact, be having on the uh, the founder of the company next week. That'll be really interesting. And uh, this, what, just some details for you. It allows you to see any doctor that you want. There's no deductibles, exclusions, or co-pays. You only pay the first $500 of any healthcare event. The Crowd Health community takes care of the rest. And if you're like me, you're already paying over $500 a month in health insurance costs. So, you know, first $500 of any healthcare event, that sounds like a way better deal to me. There's no exclusive doctor networks, no huge premiums or high deductibles, and no surprises. As I said, open enrollment is the only time you can hit eject on the broken system without penalty, so don't wait. And for a limited time, you can join for just $99 per month for your first six months when you use promo code LOCKDOWN at joincrowdhealth.com. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code LOCKDOWN. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. Today, I am joined by Robert Wright. He is the author of Fearless, and I thought that it would be interesting to have him on because there is some uh, historical cognates to ESG, kind of precursors to it, and I thought that this would be an interesting story. Um, I'll bring him in and just let him tell you a little bit about the story. So thank you for joining us, Robert. Hey, it is an honor to be here. Uh, I love the title of your your show. Uh, I have another book out uh, or coming out soon called Liberty Lost. Mm. So uh, you are a, my people. <laughs> yeah, it's about how we used to in this country when we saw a problem, we would form a nonprofit organization to try to solve it. We wouldn't mm. run to the government and say, "Oh, this is a problem. We don't like this. You know, help us fix this." Uh, we we did it on our own, and that I discovered was the one of the key features of the founders and framers' definition of liberty was leaving yeah. a lot of problems for the the people themselves to solve through self organization, like forming nonprofits and not running to the government, which causes all kinds of problems where. You know, the, the, the government starts a bureaucracy that just won't go away. It just gets bigger and bigger over time and increases its remit. And um, the great thing about nonprofits is if they can't convince people to voluntarily give them money, they go away. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, that, that's one of the biggest uh, confusions that people have about libertarianism is that there's this belief that we do not want to, uh, you know, alleviate any of the ills of society and everyone's just on their own. It's like, no, uh, we just want it to be voluntary. And, and every time you turn to the government to solve anything, it ends up being a bureaucratic nightmare that usually doesn't even begin to address the underlying issue for which you gave them additional resources and power. Exactly. And uh, Wilma Sauce, the subject of the book Fearless, um, d discovered this throughout her life. Now, she, she, when she was born in San Francisco in the year 1900, um, she, she later on, she said that she was born Republican, mm. right? And, and which was an interesting phrase that kind of flummoxed my, um, my co-author, you know, how can somebody be born Republican versus becoming a Republican? Well, Wilma's maternal grandfather worked for Germania Life Insurance Company, which I had happened to have written the history of uh, some 20 years ago. And oh, wow. I knew that, yeah, it was founded by people who fled persecution in Germany following the 1848 uh, failed uprisings there. And mm. they, were, they were adamantly anti-slavery to a man. Mm -hmm. So there was no, uh, you know, no question that they would join the Republican Party when it uh, came along in the 1850s. And they remained in the Republican Party throughout that whole Germania um, period. By the way, it's called the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America today. Uh, it's uh, one of the largest uh, mutual life insurers. And uh, it changed its name during World War II, excuse me, during World War I because of all the anti-German sentiment. When a lot of companies that had variations of uh, German in their names switched uh, yeah. and uh, had, had came up with more Anglican or Anglicized uh, sounding sounding names, so she's born Republican. But as we know, a Republican's not a Libertarian, so she still had some uh, mis uh, misapprehensions about the government being, um, uh, you, you know, able to play a positive role. And so one of the things that she backed at first was the Securities and Exchange Commission. And she did that because, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission was out in the 1930s. And she had just lost her uh, inheritance given to her by her maternal grandparent, this person who was a Republican and who worked for Germania um, and, and later Guardian. He turned the money over to a trustee, and the trustee didn't see the great crash of 1929 coming, as, as so few did. And so he blew it all uh, oh, in, in the Depression. So she, when the SEC comes out, she was one of the people who were like, hey, this is not such a bad idea, you know, to have somebody looking after, uh, you know, after stockholders' uh, uh, funds. Uh, and yeah. she, she made quite a bit of uh, money, by the way, uh, in the Great Depression more than her husband did, and uh, more, of course, than most men, including, uh, of course, the third of men who are out of, out, out of work. Well, yeah, so, it wasn't hard to make more than them. Uh, well, it's, it's funny you, you mentioned that uh, people were changing their last names uh, from Germany because I actually, my family did the same thing. I used to have, I won't say it because I don't want people to, you know, Google me, but um, I had umlauts over the U, uh, the, you know, the full... German makeup and and uh, my family actually changed. I believe after World War One, 
uh, just because there was so much anti-German sentiment. Yes. Um, but I, it, it could have been after World War II. I think it was World War One. It's a interesting story, and and uh, you know I think that's why I've always had an affinity for Republicans is because of their mistrust of government. I obviously I think they don't take it far enough, and I think that anytime you turn to the government to alleviate any issue. It ultimately uh, backfires. I think the SEC, unfortunately, is a good example of that. They are not very good at what they do. Yes. Um, but I do also understand why some people believe that it's necessary. Anyways, let's uh, let's hop into the story. So you wrote this book about who again? Uh, name's Wilma Sauce, S-O-S-S. And she was born Wilma Porter Weissman. Um, but she gets married. She gets a journalism degree from uh, Columbia in, in 1925, and she starts a career. So she's right off the bat. This is a highly unusual woman uh, because mm -hmm. most uh, women. I mean, it's something like one percent of the population had undergraduate <laughs> degrees right. um, in, in in 1930. Um, so well, not not to mention just a woman who's who's who goes to college and also works. That's uh, not exactly the norm back then. Yes, right, and uh, she's never never had any children for reasons we we didn't uh, we didn't discover. But uh, she, still, she's she's married, and she has a very successful uh, career in PR, uh, public relations. That was a new industry uh, in the 1920s and, and 1930s, and uh, she gets a job right out of um, Columbia, working for a, a Brooklyn um, newspaper. Yeah, Brooklyn used to have its own newspaper, several actually, believe it or not. Um, but uh, somebody noticed the quality of her writing, and that got her the attention of this guy named um, Harry Reichenbach, who was one of the, the key pioneers of the PR industry. And mm. he just gets her up to speed on how this uh, industry works, and then he dies and leaves her essentially with his, with his business. With all of his contacts and she leverages that to the hilt and she starts um, being the PR consultant for um, Saks Fifth Avenue and the International Silk Guild and uh, an operatic uh, singer named Gladys Swartwout uh, and she's just raking it in left and right during the Great Depression uh, but then you know with the loss of, of this inheritance, she doesn't invest it in the stock market. The stock market was down for like 20 years. I don't know if you know that, but it was, it was, it was horrible for, yes. for small investors. Um, Shout out to FDR for, you know, fixing that uh, right up. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm working on a book on FDR on the new deal too. I'm calling <laughs> it the first great reset, but anyway, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, saw some works PR for a couple of uh, heavy industrial firms during world war two, because that's where the, action was. And then after the war, she uh, writes a newspaper or, or a magazine article for Forbes, was commissioned. B.C. Forbes himself came to her and said, you're the person to write this about women in business. Wow. And she starts to do some research and she discovered that most stockholders in the largest American corporations at the end of World War II were women. And this blew people. Is that because all the all the men died in the war? I don't understand. That's, that <laughs> well, that seems unusual. Some of it is from uh, you know men, you know fathers or, or husbands or whatever, but bequeathing the stocks to their to their wives. But some of it mm. is just wives uh, because a, a, a lot of women control the family finances. 
men would make the money, but the women spent the money, and they would save up, and and uh, they they would buy they would buy shares here here and there. Uh, this is before mutual funds got really big and whatnot. Sure. And and the, the other important thing to, to point out is that while women outnumbered men, men owned more shares. Mm-hmm. So there were lots sense. of women who owned one or two shares in a corporation, right. but then there were men who owned hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of, of, of shares and whatnot. But it was still, it came as a big shock to, to people that, that women had this much um, this much power. So uh, Wilma decides that she's going to invest in the stock market again because all these other women are doing it, but she was going to handle the money herself this time. No mm. turning it over to a male trustee to, to watch for her. Good uh, idea. And, and so she buys one in U.S. Steel, which was a, you know, a behemoth after, after the Second World War, right? It's got mm-hmm. this tremendous market share. It's one of the few <laughs> remaining you know, steel, steel um, you know, that aren't in, aren't in rubble. Right. Uh, in the world, and she goes to the annual meeting, and the first odd thing is it's in Hoboken, <laughs> New Jersey. Why, why isn't it in New York City? Right. Uh-huh. Well, she shows up and she finds out there's hardly anyone there. the The annual stockholder meetings had gone from important uh, components of corporate governance into these uh, perfunctory affairs. That were mm. often held in places like Flemington, New Jersey, or Wilmington, Delaware, just really out of the way places. They're they're boring. There's hardly anyone there. There's no discussion. And she says, you know, she 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 calls, uh, you know, she calls shenanigans on this basically, and says, uh, no, we're going to have real discussions. Like, why aren't there any women on the board? And uh, the um, U.S. Steel retorts, well, there are, there are no qualified women. And she pulls out, you know, the resumes of, uh, of, of a dozen women who are at least as qualified as the males on the board. So now the board's kind of caught with, uh, you know, you, you know what's hanging out. <laughs> um, so they, they stonewall and stonewall and, and she gets sick of it. Uh, so in 1949, she uses her, her experience in PR in order to make this national news. She does it by showing up at the the U.S. Steel annual um, stockholder meeting in 1949, wearing her mother's dress from the 1890s, <laughs> which is you know completely different style than than what they. It would be like somebody showing up today in a mini skirt, you know, with flowers in her hair, and you know, looking like a hippie sort of sort of thing. Sure, sure. So well, the reporters flock to her, and she knows a lot of the reporters anyway because of her PR her PR career, somebody snaps a photo and it goes out on something called the AP wire. So to all the newspapers in the, in the country, basically it's the equivalent of, uh, you know, a viral YouTube video today sort of thing. So she's almost overnight a celebrity and she uses that to um, boost uh, a nonprofit organization to go back to nonprofits that, that she created the goal of which was to increase financial literacy. Because even back then, Clint, uh, I'm sure you know what the situation is today, but even back then, government schools were not very good. Oh, I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) Especially at teaching people um, economics, finance, even personal finance. I I struggle to imagine it's any worse than it is today, but uh, I, I still, you know, to imagine that any government school at any point in history was 
teaching its citizens uh, really high quality economic literacy. Uh, no, I don't believe that's true. <laughs> so Wilma, Wilma stepped right into that, uh, you know, to, to to fill that to fill that gap into the breach. Yes, and uh, she she you know was was essentially and all the newspaper reporters started to follow her her costumes and her exploits at the at the annual meeting. She started buying shares in other corporations so that she had a right to show up there at their stockholder meetings and and raise holy cane about a variety of issues, not just the the female directors issues, but a lot of governance issues, like uh, the the lack of a secret ballot in corporate elections. Mm -hmm. Now, th this has become big again in our political uh, governance. Um, the issue in corporate governance was that they, they would hold votes on stockholder resolutions and also votes on who would be uh, in the board of directors for the next year. Right. But the managers, the, the CEOs and the C-suite people knew how people were voting right. in those corporate elections. And a lot so of stockholders were employees. Yeah, exactly. So are you going to vote against your boss? Not if you want to maintain your job. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, she she pointed that out and pushed for secret ballots for, for a couple of decades. She pushed for something called cumulative voting, which basically allowed a stockholder to concentrate all of their votes on one candidate so that small stockholders, uh, minority stockholders, as, as they're sometimes um, called, could get at least one person on the board of directors. Mm -hmm. One person to look out for their interests. You know, they couldn't control the corporation, but at least they had uh, a communication line with the rest of the board of directors because uh, they 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 had one of these. And she managed to get this implemented in another uh, at a number of uh, major U.S. Uh, corporations over the over the decades. So um, she was uh, she was quite effective and became quite famous. So famous, in in fact, that um, in 1953 there was a Broadway play made about Wilma Sauce. It was called Solid Gold Cadillac. And it had a successful run. It was successful enough that Hollywood uh, wanted a piece of the action. So Hollywood came along and, and you know, dumbed it down further and, and, and so forth. So it's, it's, it's hardly a, bio, a biopic. It's loosely based on Wilma Sauce, but everyone knew it was Wilma Sauce. It was a blonde, for goodness sake, you know, who, who they, who they cast to, to, to play, uh, to play her character. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a big, it was a big hit. It wasn't Avatar, but, um, you know, it, it made money for the studio and, uh, is, uh, is considered a, a film classic now by people who study that, that sort of stuff. And that and comes what out. Was it, what was it called? I was called the Solid Gold Cadillac. Oh, that was the name of the movie as well. Okay. Yes, Just, yeah. I didn't know if they changed it. So, oh no, they they didn't change that. They they changed a lot of the you know the, the storyline to fit with how they they added a love interest, for example. Of course. Um, so yes, of course. Um, so that was fifty six. Uh, by fifty seven, uh, Wilma has her own nationally syndicated NBC radio show. Wow, weekly. And it was called Pocketbook News. And again, it was to further um, you know, financial literacy. Basically, what she did was take the news of the week and she translated it or interpreted it for investors. So there's a Suez crisis going on in Egypt. What does that mean for your money? What should you do? Sort of, sort of stuff. 
she over the years developed quite because uh, she had a, a, a pretty good um, education at Columbia. We were actually able to define the curriculum and she took some serious courses in history and in economics. So she had the background necessary that so once she started to have this weekly show where she had to write these scripts every week, uh, she really started to become um, a top-notch pop economist. She started to understand things like uh, leading economic indicators and even develop some of her own. Like um, she used to track um, burlap orders. Hmm. Which which sounds crazy. You're like, uh, how important is that? Well, it turns out that back then, um, furniture manufacturers used to use burlap in the shipping process to protect the, the furniture from being scraped or, or oh, messed wow. up or whatnot. So if she saw an uptick in burlap sales, she could think, oh, well, the next thing that's going to happen is going to be an uptick in furniture orders. And of course, that's a major consumer um, durable that you know, goes into the GDP calculations. So she was quite, uh, quite astute and uh, she was pretty funny. She uh, had though a, a, a face, how, how does that saying go? She had a face for television. <laughs> um, she did not have a radio voice. Mm. Uh, her tapes sur survive of her shows and I was able to listen to it. And um, some of the complaints that were made, I started to understand. One person said that she had a voice like a strident mongoose. Uh, <laughs> it was not all that pleasant to, to, to listen to, but, um, you know, she was still on the air for almost a quarter of a century and it's because people really, uh, valued what she had to say because she didn't pitch stocks. She was mm -hmm. not a Jim Cramer saying, buy this, don't buy that sort of thing. She was just explaining how things work to people, telling interesting stories, cracking some jokes. And people uh, really, really responded to it. She had a corporate sponsor for one year. It was a big pharmaceutical company that is still around and I won't name. <laughs> but she, uh, after the year, she dropped the sponsorship, even though uh, it meant less money for her because she felt as though it was impinging too much on her um, journalistic integrity sure. to, have to, to have to work that stuff uh, in, into her shows. And she thought she'd have a bigger audience if she maintained, you know, her credibility. And uh, NBC Radio agreed and her, her ratings went up even more because people knew that she might not be right about everything, of course, but what she said is what she believed. She was exactly. not a show for some corporation. I can't help but notice a, a ton of cognates between myself and her, to be honest. It, it's uh, especially, you know, I've only been doing this podcast a little over two years now, but the sponsorship issue is always a challenge. You just have to be very, very certain that you do not bring on anybody as a supporter that that will try and curtail your perspective whatsoever. And fortunately, um, I retired a couple of years ago because I was a successful mortgage broker, so I, I, I have no financial needs so i if any sponsor comes to me and says you know we want you to do xyz along with just the ad read i just tell them kick rocks i'm not interested um and and it seems as if she had you know even if she didn't have that financial security that i do uh she she maintained her you know her character and and understood the the pressures that come with uh you know corporate sponsors so that's that's very profound 
Well, she she did have some security because of all this money that she made in the Great Depression. No, I, I realize that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. As as uh, as as a as a major force in the PR industry, but she started to lose that over the course of the 1970s mm, okay. because of the Great Inflation. Yeah, she was adamantly in favor of keeping the U.S. dollar tied to gold. And she did everything in her My power, gal. yeah, on her <laughs> weekly show to try to stop the slide off from, you know, the dollar off from gold. Yeah, the gold uh, standard, sure. Yeah, 1971, she, man. She supported Nixon on everything, um, even up to the last minute on Watergate. But she always, uh, you know, opposed Nixon for... Uh, taking us off gold, and of course for the price controls that uh, that he put into place, she predicted that um, you know the delinking dollar from gold would lead to inflation, and she was absolutely correct about that. Uh, she complained bitterly about things like a bracket creep before they really entered the the national conversation, uh, and we you know eventually in the 1980s. Uh, there were some uh, performs made at the IRS that tamped down on bracket creep a little bit, but um, uh, I'm sure that there for, are people... Forgive me, bra bracket creep being uh, tax brackets? Yeah, tax brackets. So your yeah. your nominal income is going is going up, um, but your real income might might not be what, we, what you can actually buy. But uh, because the tax brackets were indexed to inflation at all back then, uh, you would end up paying a higher tax. Yep. You'd also pay a higher tax at the grocery store and other places where there are retail taxes, right? If you, if you bought a shirt, uh, you know, if the, if the, um, you know, the, the sales tax is 7% and you buy a shirt for $10, right? You're paying 70 cents in tax. But mm. when that shirt goes up to $15, now you're paying over a buck in tax for the same shirt, <laughs> right? Sure. So uh, she was she was very in tune with with all of that, and it was because her her personal finances were getting um, pinched a little bit, and and that of her nonprofit uh, as well. And uh, you know, so she she started to notice things like uh, you know corporations that wouldn't raise their dividends, um, even though there was an inflationary environment, and she's like, you know, what's the what's the deal with this? You know, and then the CEOs say, "Oh, well, I need a, uh, I need a, a salary bump because we've kept dividends up." And she's like, "No, but in real terms, dividends aren't flat. staying up with inflation, right? right? So they're actually going down in real terms." Uh, and and she would read, uh, you know, like her grocery bill online and show how the quarterly dividends from one corporation, uh, you know, bought bought her a, a pair of lamb chops. Today's episode is also brought to you by Expat Money Summit. They're an upcoming online summit just a month away by my friend, Mikel Thorup, who has been on the show. He's the man behind expatmoney.com with over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. It's free, costs you absolutely nothing to attend, gives you tons of resources and information that are invaluable, super valuable. Expatmoneysummit.com is where you go 
to reclaim your freedom from chaos and uncertainty. Topics will include how to secure your own plan B safe haven, how to use foreign currencies, offshore banking, and decentralized finance to safeguard your money, how to legally reduce your tax burden. A ton of information. Going to have a great lineup of speakers. It's a multi-day event. Costs you nothing, like I said. All you have to do is go register for free over at expatmoneysummit.com. This is your way to fight back against what is happening in the world. Stand up, protect yourself, and find out how to secure your new life abroad. Again, register for free at expatmoneysummit.com. Let's get back on the show. At the supermarket. That right, was right. it. <laughs> she she brought it down to the, the base level because that, that's who her audience was. It sounds like, you know, it, if it may not ma may not have mattered to her in terms of the pennies that she was saving, but I'm sure for her audience's sake, that would have been very important, uh, especially during inflationary periods. It's it, it's a massive struggle. I guess in the 70s, it sounds as if it did start to matter to her because she lost uh, some of her wealth during that period. And I think that's how a lot of people feel today with the inflation. Um, I wanted to ask, and this may be a little bit outside your purview, or maybe it may require you to guess, but would she have felt positive about the quota style hiring? Because... It, it seems to me that that would have been against probably what she wanted to see in the world. Yeah, she would absolutely be against uh, quotas, uh, like that uh, California quota on boards that, right. uh, you know, thankfully the, the California um, Supreme Court shot down adamantly against that because it's unconstitutional. And sure. she was Republican from that period, believed very strongly in, in the Constitution, very strongly in capital, very strongly in uh, what's um, called moral suasion. So if you think that somebody is doing something that is not right, you go to them and you present your case in a rational way. Right? You don't go to the government and uh, point fingers and uh, you, you don't... Uh, you know, cancel them actively. Uh, you talk to them and you try to persuade them to your to your view of the world. And if they do that, or if they if they don't listen, then you know you might try to draw more attention to it. Um, right. Just like she did when she you know called out uh, these these CEOs at the corporate um, the stockholder annual meetings when when they wouldn't uh, you know put qualified women on the board. Um, but uh, yeah, it was no 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 government coercion or coercion of any sort, really. It was just, hey, this is the right thing to do. Why not do it? There are qualified women. And we know that she was very adamant about qualified women because she would oppose women who were put up for corporate boards if she didn't think that they were qualified. There was one uh, infamous case where the wife of a governor of Colorado uh, was up for a corporate board, and she opposed it. Um, she opposed it on her show. She opposed it at the stockholder meeting, and she voted against the the woman um, because she didn't think the woman had the, the the qualifications. And that would just, yeah, that that's just wrong and and bad for the corporation, and right. also and, instead of pressing for the shareholder. I mean, yeah, I, bad I for think the shareholder. Yeah, that's that's a level of character that I I can actually get behind because. I just hate when it's all about representation and it has nothing to do with qualification. It's like, well, then you're creating additional problems while you think you're alleviating some. And and I think that that's, that's really where we're at today with ESG, where you know you have uh, hiring quotas that go into your, uh, your, well, either your S, your social justice, or your G, your governance score. Either way, it could be categorized. And and ultimately, it's very counterproductive because you end up with people that are not qualified for the job. Kamala Harris, cough, cough. 
um, <laughs> that, that really, you know, set women back ultimately. Uh, you know, people think that, oh, it's the first female vice president. And then, well, you get someone up there who can't do the job and it's disastrous. <laughs> and now, now people will be hesitant to consider women moving forward. And I think that's, that's tragic. So I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that she was, uh, uh, a meritocratic advocate for women. Yes. Uh, and if it, she, she proved one thing. I mean, the, the old canard was that, oh, if you put a single woman on the board, the whole corporation is just going to collapse. And uh, if that woman's qualified, that absolutely is not the case. The whole no, board could be not. women if they're qualified and everything sure. would be, would be hunky, hunky dory. Um, so, uh, now ESG didn't exist back then. In no, the not even close. Today, yeah. But there was something called the corporate, um, uh, social responsibility movement. Yep. And, uh, Wilma was opposed, uh, to that as well because investors, stockholders own the corporation. She was right along with Milton Friedman, you know, arguing that, um, Society is best served if corporations strive to maximize profits, yep, right? and and not dilute their 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 uh, abilities by trying to please everyone, right? Because then you end no. up pleasing no one, and then people are like, "Well, why should I invest?" Right? In yeah, Milton Friedman uh, basically put a nail in that coffin, in my opinion, and yet. Uh, that coffin's been reopened somehow <laughs> where people, people are redirecting their, their interests, their demands towards a whole bunch of things that have nothing to do with either profit or, you know, innovation or the product, or, you know, it's, it's really, or, you know, competitive advantage. It's just, it's really remarkable. I, I think she would have, uh, she would have been appalled to have seen what has happened to the stock market broadly because of it. Absolutely. And I tried to put a nail in that coffin uh, too, and I think I did. It's just nobody pays attention. I mean, that's that's the new thing on the left, right? If, if somebody presents information you don't like, you just it's Russian Russian disinformation, Rob. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I don't think I've been accused of that yet. But, um, oh, I have plenty of times. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm I'm aspiring though, uh, but <laughs> I, I wrote a book where I showed that. Uh, the first corporate responsibility movement in the U.S. occurred in the 1780s and 90s. And it was shot down by a compromise, or it was ended by a compromise, where basically the, the founders and framers said, hey, some people can form what they called a moneyed corporation, which means for-profit in today's parlance, yeah, or yeah, you yeah. can create a, a non-profit. Fascinating. Right? So you, you don't make the for-profit do stuff that it doesn't want to do, but you're more than welcome to go form a nonprofit corporation. Yeah. So, well, and we still that's, have that's that. That's fascinating. That, that, that I, I honestly, as obvious as it is, I hadn't even considered the fact that like, yeah, we have nonprofits to alleviate the, the quote unquote ills of capitalism, if you perceive them to be. And, uh, and yet it, that has not been adequate for the activists like they they want every single business functioning in society all to be working to the same goals of social justice and blah 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 yeah 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 we even have a type of corporation now called a beneficial corporation and that is in between a for-profit and a non-profit mm -hmm. right so it kind of has esg built right into it 
It's not wildly popular, though, because nobody wants to capitalize the suckers. Mm-hmm. Because why would you? Right. Well, right? Uh, I mean, that's that's the issue is that now there is a tremendous imperative to capitalize ESG corporations because of their special treatment that's received either via central banks globally or governments globally who are all in lockstep with the same protocols. And I I think that people are just now starting to wrap their heads around the fact that we really no longer have a free market. We have a, and, and, you know, Mussolini would have been thrilled at how fascistic the, the relationships are between big business and governments and central banks in, in, within that. Um, Have you, uh, it sounds as if you're, you know, the entire history of this stuff. What's your, your view as to, what the current economy or the current economic model we're dealing with is. Am I overstating it to call it a fascistic enterprise model? Uh, well, I, I don't think so, at least in the cases that have now become uh, clear where the government was directing social media companies like like Twitter to take down certain information. Exactly. Right? That, that is some, some of my friends. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, I, I work at AIER. We put out the, the Great Barrington declaration right and that was savagely attacked yeah Uh, i've had i've had jeffrey tucker on the show a couple times uh it's uh it's horrific what they've done to the the truth tellers in our era yeah yeah so that that certainly is um we have uh this i mean wilma would be opposed to to two things that are, are going on uh one is the the move towards everyone just putting their money in the hands of a mutual fund because that creates yet another layer between the ultimate owner, the individual, and the corporation, right? So it increases what economists call principal agent problems or agency costs increase, because now you have a decision maker who has a lot of economic power in the form of, you know, a hedge fund or a a 401k, one one fund or, or what have you, any sort of investment fund. And they might have different views than than the investors as well, and different um, motivations too. Different motivations, yeah, it's, it's absolutely t- tremendously problematic. And, and the voting rights that that the biggest money managers on earth now hold, you know, Larry Fink thinks he's the most powerful man on earth just because he manages ten trillion dollars and gets to vote for the majority of those shares. But in reality, that's not how it's supposed to be. The the pensions, everybody that that had that has entrusted him and he has a fiduciary responsibility to them first and foremost he has abdicated that responsibility by voting in in alignment with esg guidance because of un dictates as well as uh you know local government dictates and it's it's just horrific and i i think that the same issues that we've now seen in the insurance industry where there's a disconnect between the end consumer and the provider because you have this middleman not to mention the government that's now uh, an umbrella all over the entire apparatus, it's it's really problematic. Whenever you get separation between the the end user and the provider, you just have all sorts of problems that arise. And I think that ESG is a good example of that. Yeah, and you know, so I, I guess the good news is that there's still some room for entry. So I wrote a piece for AIER earlier this year where I argued for the creation of freed what I call Friedman funds after Milton. Mm-hmm. that would um, uh, short ESG um, and that would uh, try, try to do Musk-style takeovers of uh, 
corporations that had gotten too woke for their own good, like like Twitter. Beautiful. Um, I, I mean, I think the issue with Musk was that he tried to, to shoulder that all himself uh, instead of just forming a, a you know a vehicle so that everyone who's along with him could have invested in that and helped to, to finance that. Um, well, but I, then I, like, I, like, like I, Vivek Ramaswamy has some ETFs now that are. Yeah, Stripe Capital same, Management. Yeah, that are in that same vein. So I was I was just going to ask you what you think about them. But before I say that, I, I would like to mention that I think Elon Musk is actually doing it right because I think he's going to take it private entirely so that the whole the whole issue is basically null and void. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think about Vivek's uh, you know chances of actually prevailing? Because I still think that there's because of the the beneficial treatment that comes with participating in the ESG racket. I'm not sure that we can compete. Uh, I honestly, like, I, I really, if you don't have, you know, access to the Fed window and special government contracts and all the all the benefits that come along with playing ball with the government or the central bank, I don't know if you can compete. I think we're going to find out. Yeah, we'll we'll find out. I mean, it it cuts both ways. Um, you know, a lot of people were amazed at how quickly Japan became a world power. Uh, you know, de defeating the the Russians and what was it, 1904 or whatever, and 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 that and uh, that very short short war. Um, and whereas you know the Black Fleet from the U.S. had shown up in in Tokyo Harbor just like 50 years earlier. So how did how did it do that? Well, we put uh, um, a very negative, um, uh, very, uh, reverse tariff scheme basically on Japan. And it, it was designed to try to keep Japan down economically, hmm. but it actually forced them to become more competitive. Interesting. So the same thing can happen in business where something that seems like it's an impediment is actually helpful because it forces you to, to think about things in, in new and more innovative ways and not just to rely on, you know, getting a lifeline from from the Federal Reserve. Or no, I, that's a great point. And I, I think that the the imperative for innovation and cost cutting and doing all the things that all of these big businesses ought to be doing anyways, uh, they will be the only ones that have that imperative. And, and I think that that will ultimately make them stronger. It's just that, you know, you have, I guess, essentially an endless money stream as long as you have a relationship with the Federal Reserve and as long as we don't have severe inflation, which we now do, um, you know, they they can essentially, it's kind of like the Amazon business model where they don't ever have to turn to profit because they just continue to put their competitors out of business and and the, the, the stock itself keeps them afloat. And I just think that's a, it's an interesting question if that's a, a long-term functional business model or if ultimately because you become so dominant in your field that you lose that competitive innovation capacity and that ultimately some upstart comes and eats your lunch. And I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm rooting for the underdogs here because we need, <laughs> we need innovation and we need underdogs to rise up. And, and most importantly, we need the capacity for the average man and the entrepreneur to have the ability to, to rise up. Otherwise you end up with people turning towards the government and saying, Hey, help me. I can't do anything. And, and that's really the key and really what was so frightening about what happened in, in 2020 and 2021 with the suppression of, you know, small and medium-sized uh, businesses in this My country. My God, yes. But, 
if if we can you know continue to allow fairly decent entry, then uh, you know I tend to be more more optimistic about our longer term uh, prospects. You know, the next couple of quarters, next couple of years are not looking good economically, but no. But, uh, longer term, as long as we can continue to, to innovate. So to bring Japan um, back up again, uh, I'm old enough to remember in the 1980s that Japan was supposedly going to clean our clocks, right? They yep. were just going to take over. And uh, it didn't happen. Um, remember so when there was, it was like one, I think it was like one square mile of Tokyo real estate was like worth as much as New York or something like that. Yeah, I mean, they were yeah. like super bubble territory. Yeah, uh, so I, I mean that's why I'm not I'm not as worried about uh, China's economic impact as as a lot yes. of uh, as a lot of people. because you actually know history. <laughs> yes, right. Yep, uh, I'm I'm worried about uh, you know China militarily. Because, Me too. You know, we didn't have to worry about Japan militarily in the in the 1980s and and, and 90s, but China's a, a whole whole other story and a whole other whole other thing to talk about, but. I guess the other big um, other big ESG thing is that the SEC seems like it wants to get involved uh, in this, which will be very bad. And uh, Wilma Sauce, by the end of her career, realized that the SEC was not helpful to individual investors yeah. um, because uh, it gives a false sense of security. It's not really checking out uh, investments, as we learn with later on with like the Bernie Madoff uh, scandals and all of that. Um, it kept blocking her, um, one of her corporate governance initiatives was to have stockholders pay for audits. And like yeah, well, you, I mean, you, you, you get it, right? Yeah. You, um, because, uh, because their fiduciary responsibility is to the investors exclusively. I mean, exactly. that's the whole problem with regulators is that, especially when you're talking trillions of dollars, which in the global economy today, that's what we're talking about. Um, well, if you're dealing with that kind of money, what what fraction of that is necessary to purchase the regulator? It's going to be a small, small fraction of that. So yes, you know. yes, and she also, I mean, before you know the Big Bang in, in '75 when they deregulated um, stockbroker commissions, uh, she didn't like the way the SEC was regulating those because. Um, uh, she felt as though the the brokerage fees that they allowed were were much too high for small investors, and it turns out she was right because as soon as they deregulated it, there was all this competition, uh, and uh, you know now brokerage fees are are, are tiny, um, even even for fractions of shares, right? So um, and some of that was technological advance, but a lot of it was technological advance because the the incentive was there finally. Uh, mm -hmm. to, uh, to 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 get costs down on on small stock uh, trades, so including um, competition brings brings prices down. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's weird. We have to even talk about this stuff, but uh, I mean, it just it's just so frustrating because, like, uh, you know, I, as you can probably tell, I'm an Austrian economics guy, and and it's just so it's so irritating that we have so much evidence to our argumentation, you know, like, it, like I have so many historical examples of why this is how you want to formulate an economic model. And yet you have, you know, popular will in large part because of public education, which has broken everyone's brains when it comes to economics, that it makes it almost impossible in a democratic system, which we're obviously not supposed to be, we're supposed to be a democratic republic, but putting that aside, uh, it just makes it incredibly challenging to get the, the, populists to actually support 
what would actually be a free market, which benefits all of us. It's frustrating as hell. It is. Um, but that's why I do what I do. Of course. Uh, and, and I appreciate your work. Like yours and, <laughs> You, you know, to try to try to get the, the right the right word out there. And, um, I, you know, I don't think most people are, are dumb. I, I think they're they're ignorant. Me too. And, and, and I like that expression, um, broke broken brains, because I think that's what what they did. But but they're not permanently broken. I think that uh, they, they can be uh, be helped. And we could if we could change certain public policies that steer all of this um investment into the stock market and allowed it to move into things like real estate uh we're essentially forced you know via 401ks and 403bs and other retirement accounts you know to invest in securities mm -hmm. instead of in things like gold silver and, and real estate and so uh you know we we see these massive moves in the in the stock market but there's always buying pressure because every payday all those 401ks, right? And all that money going into them. And where's it going to go other than the stock market? There are very few uh, alternatives. Well, I mean, I, I would argue against real estate just strictly because it's it's predicated on interest rates, which have been doubled over the past six months. And, and I think that we're looking at major headwinds in that arena. That was my former industry. So that's why I can speak to it intelligently. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, I completely agree with you. I mean, it, the, the restrictions that they put on people, not just with their 401k investments, but also with, you know, Roth IRAs and, and things of that nature. Uh, it's very frustrating. I mean, the fact that you don't have full rights to dictate wherever you want to invest your money is a complete tragedy. And it ultimately creates malinvestment and, yeah. and, it, and it ends up with people ultimately losing money, even though these regulations are put in place allegedly to help people make sure that they still have a retirement at the end of the day. It's, it's all so counterproductive. Bingo. And, you know, in, in terms of real estate, uh, we're rewarded for taking out mortgages. Yes. Which is crazy. And the yeah. exact opposite of the, the case early in Wilma's life where people were, were rewarded for building equity in real estate. Right. Because then once you own the place, it turns out it's a pretty good deal. I discovered this because I happen to own some real estate outright and it creates nice, uh, n nice rental streams when there aren't um, moratorium against um, rent, <laughs> rent paying. Yes. <laughs> and, and yeah. so right? uh, that's that's why I got out of the industry, if you can believe it. I, as soon as I heard that the the federal government was going to do foreclosure and eviction moratoriums, as uh, a first lien holder, I was like, well, this is insane. I mean, property rights in this country are gone. It's it's over. Like, if they can do this during an emergency, they can do it anytime they want. During and, an uh, emergency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so I, I realized the writing was on the wall that you know property rights in this country are no longer being honored, and as such, I can't lend on property. And uh, you know, I I informed my investors, which were a hundred plus retirees that relied on that income, and I just said, "Hey, guys, um, you know the paradigm has changed. I, I apologize, but I can no longer, in good conscience, do what I used to do, and it's tragic, you know." It, it, but you just have to be honest with people, especially when you have a fiduciary responsibility to them to to tell them the truth. And uh, I hope that they've they've weathered this insane market over the past two years since I stopped managing their money. Um, I would imagine many of them are suffering terribly because I, I bet a, a bunch of them migrated towards the stock market, which was great for the first year and horrific for the past six months. Um, so it's 
it's just tough, man. It, but it, it's it's really it's sad because you know I am or I was you know one of the few money managers that I think really did care and put their investors' interests first. And because of you know government interference in the economy, I no longer want to do it. And and I'm sure there's you know thousands of people like they're out you know out there that are like me. And and uh, what you end up with is you know pushing the best and the brightest out of uh, a really vital industry where you're managing people's hard earned life savings. And you end up with people who either through ignorance or through greed continue to function in this, this system. And, and I think that that, that really sets us up for disastrous end consequences. I agree. hundred percent. Yeah. Anyways, uh, anything else you'd like to add before we hop out? No, just uh, I hope that uh, people will uh, check out uh, Fearless. You know, be fearless, read a book. <laughs> read, a, read a fearless book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and be, very cool be like. Things in there that we, we couldn't get to. I mean, I just did an hour and a half long uh, show and we, we barely scratched the surface. So, um, no, I'm sure there's a, a heck of a lot more to learn. And she sounds like a fascinating woman, uh, an inspiration, uh, if I do say so. It, so, I, I'm glad that you. You have done a, a deep dive reporting on her, and I hope that she inspires some people. I, I have, uh, you know, contrary to most libertarian shows, I actually have quite a few female listeners, so I, I'm sure they'll be very inspired. This will be good. Thank you for uh, for joining us, Robert. It was great. Thank you. Anytime. Great to be here. It's been a while since I gave you the latest in the reviews that you guys are so kind to leave, and I just want to do that to show my thanks for the support you're giving me. Uh, we got uh, Leonard Noah says episode 199. That was the Dave Smith versus Sticks debate. Says bed, best co- uh, Jesus best podcast to date. Excellent. The big question is and will be this: Can and will Trump learn from his mistakes, or even admit to the largest mistakes, letting the deep state run up the death count in regards to the pandemic? I do not think he will. I don't think so either. But uh, I would love to be proven wrong. We'll we'll see. Uh, D Knight uh, Rocking says five stars straight reporting. Kun is level headed and open to various viewpoints. Thank you. I try to be. Even though I'm very opinionated, I do try to be open to uh, different opinions. Uh, Noarminian says my list of favorites. I don't know how I missed this show. Five stars. Well, thank you so much. And then Wang Chung DD says five stars. Clint is the average man's Joe Rogan. Well, thank you. Clint, you're killing it and such an inspiration to others. You have some real talent for this. Keep it up. I love every single episode you put out. Well, thank you, Wang Chung DD, Double D. Uh, appreciate you guys for the support. We're approaching 500 uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts now, which is incredible. We've got like 200 reviews over on Spotify. You guys keep just five-star me. Five-star me, five-star me. If you saw today, I tweeted out, I am now under part of the problem in his the recommended shows on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and everywhere. I am like up there with Ron Paul, Michael Malice, Tom Woods, like I'm always in the top two, three, four on every podcast I listen to. You know how cool that is for me? It's so cool. You guys did that. Thank you. <laughs> it's incredibly humbling. And what's really cool is that because of that, I get a ton of crossover from all of these podcasts that I love and listen to myself. So uh, please continue to do so. It really does help. And uh, as always, last but not least, if you want to support the work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a supporting member. It really does help. Uh, it 
doesn't cost you much. You can contribute five or 10 bucks a month or something like that. And, uh, but when enough people do it, it ends up being a, a decent amount of money that I can actually use it to grow the show. And that's always helpful. I appreciate you guys. I will see you in a couple days. Love you. Bye. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?